0: Bibles, please turn to First uh, Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 47. And uh, before we uh, dive into that, um, I forgot to mention just earlier, uh, Jeff and Michelle Park, uh, they were blessed with a little boy, baby boy last uh, Sunday afternoon. And so, um, yeah, thank you for those who've been praying. Um, his name, Jonathan Edward Clayton Park. It's a mouthful, isn't it? And uh, and the Word of God can take some um, um, credit in that because um, she was actually in contractions while I was preaching a sermon about Jonathan last week. So, (laughs) so just just saying, First Samuel chapter fourteen. Let's read it starting verse 47. We're going to read all the way through to the end of chapter 15. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Melchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telium, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, Lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the words of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore please pardon my sin. And return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours. Who is better than you? And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made woman childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let's pray. God, these words are in some ways difficult. And yet, Father, you have decided and chosen to preserve these words so that we could hear them even today Lord I ask that you would help us to have ears to listen to these words and to heed them may our lives be shaped by what you have said Father I pray that this mouthpiece would speak both clearly and boldly And I pray, Father, that your Spirit would ignite your words and transform and change us. Lord, would you be merciful to us and do such a thing? In your name I pray. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 14, 47 and following. Um, our, our, Our text begins really on a high note. It's it's almost like it's Saul's resume that he would hand off if he wanted to become a king somewhere else and say, look what I've done here. I, I, I want a, I want a better job maybe with the Philistines down the road or something. Look what he's done. He's fought against all his enemies on every side. Moab, Ammonites, Edom, Zobah, the Philistines. He routes them. He valiant, valiantly instructs the Amalekites and delivered them. You look at his uh, family life. It looks pretty pretty good, doesn't it? If you look ahead to David's life, David's got a bunch of bunch of wives. Saul's got one. It looks like a pretty picture-perfect king and family man. And, and I think the author wants to set things up for us like that. But then there's a hint in verse 52 that not everything is what it ought to be. Do you remember what the people wanted in chapter 8? The people wanted a king that would go and fight the battles for them. Look what they got. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. So although he had defeated some of his enemies, there the, the, the battle never was won against the Philistines all the days of his life. And remember the warning that, that God gave the people of Israel through the prophet Samuel? But if you want a king like the nations, what will he do? He will take. He will take all kinds of things, including your children, your sons. Look what happens at the end of verse 52. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. So you've got this glowing resume, and then you've got this verse 52. And then we dive into verse, chapter 15. You see, I think from an external perspective, Saul looked really good. Saul would be in the front benches at church on Sunday morning. Saul would look pretty squeaky clean from an external perspective. None of you are in the front benches, by the way. Saul would be pretty squeaky clean. But from a God perspective, we have chapter 15. And I think we need to dig closely and we need to remove almost every stone as we go through 1 Samuel 15 to understand and get the idea of what Samuel, Saul was actually like. And in order to organize our thoughts a little bit, I've, I've organized things under three points. First off, God's word is worthy of trust. Secondly, the people's king is not worthy of trust. And finally, God is trustworthy. God's word is worthy of trust. The people's king is not worthy of trust. And God is trustworthy. Let's get started. The first ten verses, nine verses maybe. Chapter 15, we see God's word is worthy of trust. How would you like it if uh, God came to you via the prophet Samuel and says, here's your job. I want you to go and attack Amalek. And I want you to devote everything and everyone to destruction. That's a hard word. Uh, Literally, even child and infant ox and sheep camel and donkey everything was to be devoted to destruction in fact that word repeats itself several times throughout chapter 15 devote to destruction though this command is alarming to our postmodern ears it's alarming and i just want to say a couple things with that when we struggle with what God says, what source do we appeal to to say this is wrong? And secondly, we'll get back there, but do we really know the case against the Amalekites? And do we know God's case against humanity? I think it's important to understand that in Exodus, probably three, four hundred years earlier, depending on how you date or when you date the Exodus. But in Exodus chapter seventeen we won't go there. You have the Amalekites who attack the Israelites while they're in the wilderness. That story is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter twenty five when Moses reminds the people what had happened some forty years earlier. And in verse 17, he says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Did you get the picture? The Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, about a million of them. They had just gone without water. They are faint. They are weary. And um, Amalek comes up from behind and attacks probably, most likely, the most vulnerable. Now there was a battle rage and Amalek lost. But God said, I want you to remember, when you are settled, this debt will be paid. Well, you might say, well, that was three, four hundred years ago. It's not fair that Agag and Amalek should, should, be, should be paying for what they did. But in verse 18, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. It, the Amalekites present tense were also sinners. To make it even worse, look at Agag. When Samuel slices Agag, which again is a hard word, to pieces, Samuel says to him, as your sword has made woman childless. In other words, Agag was guilty of putting children to death. God is a God of justice. God is a God that will make right the wrongs. When God says He's going to do something, He will do it regardless. Now, what's incredible is 300, 400 years, He's patiently waiting for them to repent, to turn, He could have done this 300 years earlier. My nephew did a couple tours in Afghanistan, and although he hasn't shared a bunch of, well, very few stories with me about his time there, his dad has. They stumbled on one community where the Taliban had literally wiped out an entire school, and there was... There was there was children that were slaughtered in this town, obviously quite troubling to the to the soldiers who marched upon that and saw that. Just a few weeks ago, where we watched in the news about Dr. Lawrence Nasser, a doctor for the um, U.S. Olympic gymnastic team. Was it 160, over 160 females he had sexually abused? Horrid. And and when he gets 175 years in prison we go, that's good, but that just doesn't seem enough. We want justice. And when one of the fathers of two of those young ladies, the young daughters of his when he gets, when he stands in in the uh, before the judge, he he wants to attack this man, and we understand that we get that. We go, yeah, I get that. We are a people who want justice. Our God is a God who will make sure that justice will occur. You might say, well, this is the God of the Old Testament. No, the God of the New Testament. You look at Revelation 19. He will judge, and it's not going to be pretty. God's Word is certain. But God's Word also brings comfort. If God is not a God of justice. There is no comfort. There is no comfort for that Father. There is no comfort for the... For the for the family members of for the mothers of who watch their daughters and sons being slaughtered by King Agag. God is a God of justice. And so, although it's a hard word, are are we are we the ones to appeal to God and say, God, that's so wrong. You can't do that. No, God knows what's right, and God says He can do that, and He will do that. He has to do that. You see, ever since the Garden, we've been questioning God's Word. Has God really said? We've been looking at the fruit and going, God says this, but I think we should do this. And and quite frankly, uh, uh, that's true for believers as well. Now, most of us would have no problem with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5.44 that we're to love our enemies and pray for them. Well, that's a good thing to do. But do we? When's the last time you were on your knees saying, God, would, would you just pour out your grace and your blessings upon this person who said this about me? The commands of Christ, are um, uh, they're, they're abundant. And unfortunately, we too pick and choose which ones we like and which ones we don't. Yes, God gave King Saul a hard word. But God's word is trustworthy, God's word brings comfort. God's word. God's word will come to pass. It's certain. Well, let's move on. Yes, God's word is worthy of our trust, but the people's king is not worthy of our trust. Verses 10 through 35. Right at the heart of this passage is verses 22 and 23. And at the heart of that is this little phrase, to obey is better than sacrifice. You and I have probably heard that many times. And the reason is, is because we know the story, but we also probably heard it as we've read the Scriptures. This, this phrase is woven through the Old Testament. And it's all the way into the New Testament. It's an important phrase. To obey is better than sacrifice. David actually, with this probably this incident in mind writes in Psalm 40 and then in 51. If you have your Bibles, turn there, Psalm 40, verses 6-8. through This is what David says. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. And I can just say, David, say in this, God, I delight, I delight to do your will. I want to do your will. I love doing what you tell me to do. The implication is Saul didn't. Then we read Psalm 51. You see, Psalm 51 is David after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and has Bathsheba's husband put to death and he's confronted by Nathan the prophet. And it's in that context that that David cries out to God and says, against you and you only have I sinned. And then he quotes these words again in verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. David says, I I would give you. I would slaughter a lamb if that's what it takes. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Then verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David says, you're not going to be happy with me who said I should delight that I, who said I don't, I, you know, back then I said I delighted in doing your will and now I haven't done your will. What you want is me to be broken because I haven't done your will. That's what you delight in. But let's return to 1 Samuel 15. This is what God says of, Sam, of King Saul To obey is better than sacrifice. And then in verse 23, he calls it, he calls a sin rebellion. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. He calls a sin, basically, witchcraft. Then he goes on, and presumption, which is arrogance, is as iniquity, which is deception and sin and idolatry. Behold it. Didn't Saul... Come on, good on him, isn't it? He, he, he slaughtered all the Amalekites except for the king. Like, if you were grading him uh, 100%, he probably got 95. Wiped out most of the animals. Like, let's give him a 95. Let's give him a 90. Let's say he passed. Let's give him 75. What? God calls his sin rebellion. He calls it witchcraft. He calls it arrogance. He calls it idolatry. He calls it deception. Did you hear that? Is that harsh? Well, let's take a look. There's all kinds of hints. And you have to read 1 Samuel 15, I think, carefully. Rebellion. Eight times in this in this one chapter, he uses the Hebrew word that is translated listen, hear, obey. Eight times. It's a strong word. That was a command. Listen to me, hear me, obey me. He doesn't. Four times he says you've rejected God's word. Verse 11, verse 19, verse 23, verse 26. That's rebellion. God said this, you rejected it. That's what the text says. Witchcraft? Or maybe not quite as harsh, but maybe just as harsh. I don't know. Apostasy? Same idea. Did you notice in verse 15, verse 21, verse 30? Or is it 31? No, it's verse 30. Did you see how he referred to Samuel's God? Your God? That's significant. Lynn and I, we, we've got this way of doing things in our house. When the kids are bad, we go, your kids. We're being facetious. Your God. When the rubber met the road, Saul might have been in the front row but this wasn't his God. What's intriguing, if you dig a little deeper, if you look at chapter 47, and you look at the names of his children, uh, one of them is Ishvi. If you go to Second Chronicles, it's uh, Second Chronicles. You, you don't have to turn there, but you can write that down and, and take a gander a little later. Uh, sorry, First Chronicles 8. You see that Ishvi is also named Eshbaal. You notice one of his uncles is actually named Baal in 1 Chronicles chapter 8. You notice that he sets up a monument on the top of Mount Carmel. We're going to hear later in the story about Mount Carmel where Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. There's something going on there, it's just a little subtle hint. He, He might be in the front pew. But there is something else and someone else that he loves. But God, bail your God. These subtle hints throughout. How about iniquity, deception? How about verse thirteen? As soon, the very first thing he does, as soon as he sees Samuel, what does he say? Saul comes to him, Blessed be to you, the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. You know something's fishy when somebody shows up and says, I did what you said I was supposed to do. But a little later, he says the exact same thing. Verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. He's adamant. I have obeyed. Sure you have. What do I hear now? How about idolatry? Loving something other than loving God. Look at verse twenty four. He says, I have sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I think you see this theme in, in Saul's life that he actually fears the people more than he fears God. He wants the love and the praise of the people more than he wants the love and praise of God. That's idolatry. That's loving something more than God. And you say, well, hold it. He repents, though. Look at, look at verse 24. I have sinned. He says it again later. But did you notice how he repents? Is it a broken and contrite spirit? Is it like, Lord, it's against you I have sinned, as David says in Psalm 51. I don't see that. Instead, what does he say? He says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. The thing he loves, he says, uh, uh, would you please honor me in front of the sight of all the people? Come with me so that it looks like I'm the guy in the front row with the nice white shirt. Many years ago, I cleaned carpet with a a young man that was... uh, Well, he was—he was older than me, but the time he was young. So I guess he's an old man now. And he did not like me. I couldn't figure out why he didn't like me, and um, eventually I came to hear his story. And he went to church every Sunday when he was a kid growing up. He said there was—I think there was five brothers. He says we all had to dress up. We all had to have wear our, our white shirt and our tie. We all sat in the front row. My dad was a deacon in the church. And he said, we look good. So when we came home, my dad would beat my, my mama and would beat us. Huh. I wonder if Saul was that guy. You know, I look at the people wanted a king like the nations, and that's what they got—not worthy of their trust. But when I look at this, I look at this king Saul. I, I go, "Well, am I really that that different?" How many times have I not listened to God's word? Certainly not 100%. Have I feared the people more than I feared God? Definitely, absolutely. There's times I have. There's times I have cowered and not said what I needed to say when, when standing in the presence, even in a pulpit. But I feared the people more than I feared God. I mean I look at Saul's life and I go I think he resembles us my third point is God is trustworthy I want us to look at three verses that just really seem to in the text really seem to um, contradict look at verse 11 this is God saying I regret that I made Saul king. Some of your translations will say I repent. Go down to verse the very last verse of the, the chapter 15 and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Some of your translations will say repent, exact same word. But then look at take a little peek at verse 29. And also the glory of Israel, that's that's God, will not lie or have regret. Same word. For he is not a man that he should have regret. So there's a Bible contradicting itself. Some will take the look and go, absolutely it does. Others go, well, God, God's God. he's in process, he's changing. He, he responds, you know, we, we do something and he responds to it. but let's allow the words to have a, a, a variety, have different shades of meaning. Let's start there. And let's allow the context of where those words are placed to help us define the words. And at the, at the heart of the passage, he's talking about his, his, his judgment. He says, God, what, he, he will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. He's going to do what he said he would do. And Saul, the kingdom will be torn from you. God's word is certain and it's comfort, it brings comfort. And God's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel was torn from Saul and it was given to David. But, but what about the, the first time and the last time it appears? I regret that I made Saul king. What's he saying there? For he has turned back from following me. You see, God doesn't change in his character. God is always the same, but we change, don't we? And in response to Saul's disobedience, his rebellion his arrogance, his witchcraft, his his, uh, iniquity or deception, his idolatry, God responds to that. And God says, I have to judge. I have to. But look at the last part of verse 11. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. I think you see in the prophet Samuel what you see in the God who made Samuel. You see, God regrets in this sense. He, he doesn't, like I would a fly on my sleeve, he doesn't just flick off King Saul and say, Ah, who cares? He's not nonchalant, he, he's not uncaring it breaks his heart in some way that we can't quite grasp. That King Saul would rebel in such a manner. He does not take pleasure in punishing the wicked. He does not take pleasure in punishing Agag. He does not take pleasure in punishing And I believe it's because He's such a God that we have the same phrase in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. And with that, we will close. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews near the end of the book. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in of me in the scroll of the book. Oh, didn't we read that earlier in, 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 in the sermon? Psalm chapter 40. These are the words of David. It's not David who desires to keep the Lord's will perfectly. It's none other than Christ himself. It's only Christ who lived the obedient life. It's only Christ who delights, completely delights, in doing the will of his Father. It's only him. But in Hebrews chapter 10, as we carry on, when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus did the Father's will. including going to the cross on our behalf. Because He did the Father's will perfectly, when He he becomes the sacrifice, the Father not only took pleasure in the fact that He delighted in doing His will, but the Father took pleasure in this perfect sacrifice. And it's because of that that I who is too often like Saul, it's because of that that I, who's too often... I mean, I'm guilty with, with humanity. It's because of that that we have hope. Because of that that we can stand before Him and, and go, Lord, I, I don't trust in my own doing, but I trust in the fact that I trust in your word and I trust in you. I trust in what you said you would do and what you did through Jesus. I trust in none other than the person of Jesus Christ. You see the beauty? What Saul didn't do, what David couldn't do, Jesus did. This is our God. 1 Samuel chapter 15 is a An important one. The question isn't so much, hey, don't be like Saul. The question is, put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For you could accuse probably any one of us in this room from falling short of your glory, falling short. Well, you could. The Scriptures tell us. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And yet, Father, in your grace and your mercy, you sent your Son who did delight in doing your will. And He came and He was that sacrifice that You did delight in. And by that sacrifice and by Him accomplishing Your will, You are sanctifying us. Help us to be a people who continually put their faith, our faith, in this Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen. As we do every week, we close around the table This is no different. We gather around the table because we need to be reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ. How His body became the sacrifice that we so desperately needed and how His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And and so if you're a follower of Jesus, I welcome you to come and join us. Please come with somebody because we are family. We're connected because of this Jesus. And all we do is we walk down the center of the aisle, we gather around the table, we dip the bread and dip it into the cup, and and then we just stop and remember Him and what He did. May the remembrance of what He did speak into our lives much like the Word has spoken into our life this morning.